Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Hebrews once again. The book of Hebrews chapter 13. And we will read from verse 7 down to verse 17. And Lord willing, we will spend the remainder of our time in verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or life. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, continually, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. <coughs> Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause before we enter into unpacking and looking at verse 17 this morning, and we ask you, O God, that your spirit, Lord, would prepare our hearts to receive instruction, to, to learn and to grow thereby, O oh Lord, that we would be nurtured as your people through the administration of your holy word. We need your spirit, we confess, O oh Lord. We are weak men, women, boys and girls. We lean not on our own understanding, but we seek to be taught by you. And, O oh, Father, God of light, the giver of all good gifts, we ask you now to come and to bless, Lord, your pure and preserved word that you have given us as your church. We thank you for the, wor the worship and the opportunity to give praises unto you up until this point. And we ask now that you would come and bless, Lord, your word. In Jesus' holy name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, if you ask any minister, any pastor, any preacher, teacher of scripture, they will readily admit to you that there is uh, no more difficult passages to work through than those passages where they have to speak of themselves as an office bearer in the church. And that certainly is true. And so uh, I approach this text with that same sort of, you could say, intrepidation. It's very uncomfortable telling others what they are to give unto you. But you have to remember when I'm doing this, brothers and sisters, um, I'm just the messenger. I'm going to follow my same format of preaching and teaching as I always do. I'm going to explain the text. We're going to look at a few other texts to make sure that we're rightly exegeting and handling the text. And we're going to allow Christ and his exhortations and his commands to his church speak to us without shaving off corners without softening or anything like that, even though I'm tiptoeing into this with my introduction, somewhat apologizing, um, I, I'm just going to teach you what I've gleaned from this text 
in dealing with, as you see in your sermon notes, which serves as my title, uh, the relationship that is to exist between elders, called here rulers, we'll look in a minute why, it's a good translation, the word rulers, uh, the, sometimes called pastors, sometimes called bishop, this office bearer in the church, who's, who we're going to see in a moment, is described as a preacher teacher, as a supervisor, as one who's ruling in the church, the relationship between that office and church members. But before we zero in on that relationship that's being described here, let us not forget the immediate context of what's going on. Because it's conspicuous that the inspired writer is focusing on some of these things at this juncture of the letter. Remember his main thrust, beloved, and we're reminded of this at the introduction of every sermon, especially these applicatory practical things that he's exhorting us to at the end of the letter, because they have to do with his intention of helping them from drifting from the church, from drifting from the once the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. And so all these, you could say, practical exhortations of things that we're commanded to consider, to pray about, to cultivate in our communities, in our personal lives, and to do, are intended to help fortify us from drifting. And we're all prone to do it. Beloved King David did not think the day that he was going to stand on his rooftop that he was ever a man who would drift from the truth of God's word. But we see that even King David, who is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, he was what, as we just sung in the hymn, he was prone to wonder, wasn't he? He was even prone to leave the God who he loved. And so, uh, the wrong posture, the wrong attitude to come to any of these exhortations is that, you know, I have my theology, I, I appreciate it. Uh, the young brother's exhortation in Titus there that I, that I have the right theology and, you know, and I'm okay. and No, 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 no. Uh, all of that is to trickle down into our lives in order that we live the theology, that we actually practice the theology. And this is what really is taking place here. It is him unfolding things that he's already talked about. And now he's saying, do this, practice this. And these things will help fortify you in your running the race, in your persevering unto the end. And so, with all of that said, all of us should come to this text with attentive ears. I want to learn what is it that God is saying here in order to help me, strengthen me in my perseverance unto the end. Well, the text that we're going to look at today is verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it, this ruling, with joy and not with grief for that is, present tense, unprofitable for you. Well, this text addresses the issue very plainly of the duties placed by Jesus, the head of the church, upon His people in the church. We notice right away that there are several commands that demand a response. They're not suggestions. They're not optional. But they're mandatory by Christ. And I suggest to you that we approach the text in the form of three questions. The first is kind of obvious. I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but but it is there and we have to deal with it. Who are the objects that this exercising of this command, this obeying, this submission is unto? Who are the objects in the text? Who are these rulers? Well, second question is going to be our second uh, heading is what are the commands? What are the exhortations? What do they mean? What does obey in the English mean? And how is it derived there from the original Greek? What does submit yourselves really mean? What does it look like practically in a working relationship between two human beings, church members and the elders or the rulers? And then the last question, which will be our third heading, is what is the motivation? So the who, the what are the commands, and the third motivation are going to be the three headings that we're going to walk down through 
to understand today's passage. Let's begin then with who are the objects of those who we are to obey and we are to submit ourselves unto. Well, the key term there revolves around how the English is translated rule. We saw it in verse 7. Look back up at verse 7. It was the same Greek word. Remember them which have the rule over you. It's pronounced in the Greek, hegoamai, and it's translated as, in English translations, rulers or leaders. Now, the, the word carries with it. We looked at this in verse 7. It carries with it the idea of individuals who are in the church that lead They guide, as A.J. was reading in Titus 2, by not only word, but also the action of their lives. And so these are those who are the rulers. They are ones who lead, who guide in the spiritual truths of God's word, not only by their faithful teachings, but also by the example of their life. That's the object here. Now in verse 7, we see that it was used as in a past tense, wasn't it? Remember those who rule. Remember those which have the rule over you, who have, who have spoken unto you the word of God. It was past tense. But in today, in verse 17, we're dealing with the present rulers, the living elders in the relationship of the church. And so it's clear that the inspired writer is referring here to God-given and recognized rulers and governors in the local church. I want to read something to you from a very helpful commentary that I've been using through my entire Uh, studies through the book of Hebrews. And I think it's helpful, and I want to read it to you, because when we hear the word ruler, you know, especially here as Americans, we think our minds immediately go back to the monarchy, you know, the English monarch who we we gained our freedom from, right? The tyrannical rule, right? And, and, And sometimes it helps us when we read something from a different perspective to help put the right calibration of the word and the full scope of it. So listen to what is very helpful here from a trusted older commentary by, uh, his name is Brown. In every orderly society, there must be rulers. And our Lord Jesus, who is not the author of confusion, but of peace, in all the churches of the saints, beginning with the very first church, among the gifts which he has bestowed on these churches has included, quote-unquote, governments or rulers. The pastors or bishops or elders of the primitive church, this is important, and I'll be sure to emphasize this, had no arbitrary power over their brethren in the church. No, they didn't have that. But they did enjoin, we see in the New Testament, they did encourage the believers to, quote, observe all things whatsoever Christ had commanded them. These elders or pastors, these rulers in the church that Christ gave the church, they reproved. They reproved when they uh, others when they neglected or violated Christ's laws, and when any individual was obstinate or impenitent in transgression, they excluded them from the communion of the faithful. There never, he goes on to say, has been any change introduced by Christ who alone has the power of alteration in such cases as far as is there going to be one who exercises rule or guidance or leadership in the church. He's never exercised any change in the constitution of his church. And it is of equal importance that the office bearers in a church should not aspire to a higher degree of authority and should not be content with a lower degree of authority than that which their master has assigned them, and that the members of a church should equally guard against basely submitting to a tyranny which Christ has never instituted, and lawlessly rebelling against a government which he has instituted. I thought that's helpful because when we come to this idea of a ruler translated in the English, it's a good translation, we can almost have a wrong reaction. But we heard there from the commentator that the balanced reaction is, is that as long as the ruler understands where his guardrails are, he should never accept anything less than that, nor go above that. And the church should never do the same. They should never basely not recognize the authority Christ has appointed to his church, nor should they abuse it either, right? 
Well, notice first how these elders are described. We see in verse 7 that they are described as those who have spoken the word of God to them. Brothers and sisters, these rulers, these pastors and elders who are to be obeyed, who are to have submission given unto them, ought to most be identified with this characteristic trait right here. Not that they have a winsome personality. Not that they have great administrative gifts. They are to be obeyed and submitted in so much as they have spoken the word of God. They exercise biblical rule in the church. How? By speaking the word of God. By faithfully preaching. By faithfully teaching the word of God. Rightly handling the word of truth. This is what verse 7 uh, taught us. These were the rulers in the church. They were there because they faithfully would present the message of Christ to the church. And so the primary function and activity of a ruler in the church is sacrificing whatever time is required, dispensing whatever mental exertion is necessary to rightly handle the Word of God. A man who is telling fluffy stories who is using a text as a springboard to tug on emotional heartstrings to motivate people to move in a certain direction is not fulfilling the job description of a ruler in the church. A ruler or elder in the church is first and foremost a worker, a servant. Above anything else, an elder or a ruler in the local church must be committed to and equipped to rightly study and faithfully teach the Word of God. This includes a lot of things. He must have a grasp of biblical theology. What's the overall contents of the Bible as it's teaching the truth of the promises of Genesis 3.15? I was having a conversation with a young man this week and we were talking about this aspect of ruling in the church with a grasp of systematic theology. How do all of these doctrines harmonize with one another in the Bible? And as we were going through some book material of discipleship of what it means to be an elder or pastor in the church, you must have a grasp of historical theology, meaning what have been the errors that have come against the church? And are you able and are you prepared to defend the faith that was once and for all delivered unto the saints against all of these ancient and even modern heresies? Notice in verse 7, that those who are elders or rulers in the church to whom there is to be obedience and to whom there is to be submission, notice that fundamentally their function is connected with this teaching of God's Word. And thus, an elder or ruler of the Word of God, in its correct interpretation, is the sole instrument by which a ruler in the church rules. It is by the correct and consistent interpretation of the Word of God that he has as the authority to rule the church. Elders and rulers in the church do not use force to rule. I was speaking with some brothers before church. They were telling me a story about another uh, uh, so-called pastor who was using manipulation and uh, fear-based authoritative tactics to govern and to rule in a certain situation, that is not a descriptive, a proper description of an elder or ruler in the local church of Christ. He certainly doesn't use force. He certainly doesn't use manipulative, fear-based authoritative tactics. Elders and rulers of the local church utilize the truth of God's word as their instrument of authority. And brothers and sisters, if and when elders or rulers in the church begin to incorporate into their governing of the church things such as in a a meeting, I've heard stories where there's a meeting where uh, ultimately, fundamentally, let let us hit the reset button here and recognize that the elder or the pastor of the church is first and foremost principally another brother, a member of the church. And, and, and I've heard stories where there would be one brother in the church wanting to come to talk to the pastor or talk to his fellow brother who is the elder in the church. And they're wanting to open up the Bible and talk about something in the Bible and pompously 
The, the elder, the so-called pastor, begins to yell, begins to get loud, begins to use things such as his academic training as he knows better than what that, that person, almost offended that he's even asking a question. Brothers and sisters, when these kind of tactics, um, an intentional suggestive tone of voice, a, a dominating emotional pressure, uh, some pastors or rulers in the church may have a certain physical physique, right? And, and if that's ever used to put quote-unquote pressure upon individuals in the church, that pastor or that elder or leader is out of line with their, their calling as a minister of the gospel. They need to repent and they need to change their ways. I'll never forget, I was involved in a multi pastor counseling situation where you know churches are seeking to have interconnection and intercommunion with churches and we're seeking to help people and a pastor actually suggested to me that if I remember correctly I saved it because it was just a prime example said well you need to quote unquote put pressure on that individual to move in a certain direction well, that's an interesting phrase of language. So I asked him in response, in light of what we're learning here today, in light of knowing my proper place as a servant of Christ's church to Christ's sheep, what do you mean by pressure? Well, let me just clarify what preceded this. I knew he was not meaning go to this verse of the Bible, go to that verse of the Bible. No, he meant pressure in other ways. Other ways. That's sinful. It's wrong. The authoritative instrument by which an elder rules and only can demand obedience and submission is by rightly interpreting the authority of truth in the Word. Not only is the Word of God to be His sole instrument and message of what He rules with, as we're going to see in a moment, the Word of God also and this is what we ought to love about the doctrine sola scriptura because it keeps us all in our lanes. It keeps us all going in the right direction. It also sets forth the boundaries by which church members relate to the elders. The elders and the rulers of the church, they're guarded by those same guardrails, the Word of God. They cannot go above and beyond it. That's what Brown was saying. And likewise for the members in the church. Well, we see here that the Word of God has a great role in the description of those who are, are identified as rulers or elders. But notice also, back to our verse 17, there's another description of these people. These particular men, it says, have an obligation, the text says, as those who must give an account. Well, are they giving an account to the church? Well, they certainly are... Um, by all means, accountable to their other brothers and sisters who have entrusted them to, to teach faithfully, uh, to rightly administer the word, etc., etc., live a life that is, um, as A.J. was teaching in Titus, or, or Paul was teaching, and, and, and A.J. was simply reiterating to us, uh, live a life consistent with what is proclaimed and not be a hypocrite. So indeed, a, 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 an elder is definitely accountable to the church, but here what it's being talked about is his accountability to his master. The, the master of the house. Uh, uh, in this office, I'm simply a servant uh, of the master of the house here. I'm a steward of this house, but it's his house, amen? And someday I will, all ministers will, all pastor teachers, all elders, rulers in the church will have to give an account to him. And this really hits the reset button for a lot of elders and leaders in the church. And the reason I say that is because it clearly teaches us that elders, rulers in the church, they are in and of themselves not sovereigns over the church. No, they primarily are what? Servants in the church. Not sovereigns, but servants who have to give an account someday. I think this needs to be said in our day and age of celebrity preachers. Many need to be reminded that they are not the owners of God's house. They are only appointed stewards for a temporary time in God's house. 
You see, I'm going to be replaced someday. I'm temporary. And I'm going to have to give an account for the time, the energy, the ability, the resources that God has given to me to steward to faithfully, you've heard me use that analogy before, preserve the well that pilgrims are on their way to the celestial city, that the well remains pure, that it's a refreshing drink to give in time of need, right? But I'm going to be replaced by someone else. And I've only been appointed to this role by the master of the house for a limited time. And I will someday, every minister will, have to give an account. Well, let's go on here to what is commanded. These are the elders. These are the rulers. That's the descriptive of how they ought to see themselves. That's the description of how they ought to be performing their rule how they ought to be faithfully administering God's word. That's the instrument by which they rule. I think we've clarified that. But, but what here is the duties contained from the church members unto the elder pastor or ruler in the church? Well, we see here, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls. The first command here is the Greek word paito which is translated obey. Now what's interesting about this word is that this word obey doesn't mean what you first think it means. Okay? In its active tense, which we're going to look at in a moment, in Luke chapter 20, it means simply to trust. Okay? I'll, I'll just go there. Luke 26. Don't have to turn it. Let me just read it to you. Now the, the context here, this is where uh, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus, he comes back to them, and he says, "If or they're, they're talking amongst themselves. The Pharisees, you know the scene, uh, they're trying to trap Jesus, and he says, what do you say about the, uh, the, 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 the servant John? What do you say about God's servant John? And the Pharisees are like, oh, you know, if we say this, the people, they love John, they'll think that, so forth and so on. And we find in Luke 20, verse 6, where the Pharisees say, if we say of men, if we say John is of men, all the people will stone us. For they be persuaded, Pito, that John was a prophet. You see, they've been persuaded. Uh, they, they, they think, they trust that he is a prophet. So we can't say that. But then there's another passive tense of this Greek phrase, Pito, which is translated obey. And listen how it's used in Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Long section, you've got to read it together, right? Nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear the, the passive sense of it? I am persuaded. I've studied these things out. I'm convinced of them. And I am persuaded of them. That's Pito. So in one sense, the people are being persuaded. They're learning to trust the truth of what's being presented. And in another sense, they've already looked at it and they've been convinced and persuaded. And so they pito. Understanding just that, it appears very strongly that our inspired writer is combining these closely related terms that are in the root of this Greek word which are trust or confidence, being persuaded or convinced, and obedience to communicate this first command that church members ought to have to their elders. And so from this, it's reasonable to conclude that the obedience that is commanded here, it's an obedience that is fostered and rendered in a climate of biblical persuasion. I think this is a much-needed remedy in our day and age because oftentimes obedience to church leaders, it's subtly and oftentimes miscommunicated as a blind obedience to the office, totally disconnected from the man. Oh, I know, you know, uh, he, he really doesn't handle the Word of God the right way. He, you know, but the office, but the office, you've got you to respect the office. You got to obey the office. Friends, that's not what the word obey here carries with it. 
it carries with it the idea, if we're correct in our understanding of it, and we're going to see in a moment, we're not alone. It carries with it the idea that he is to be obeyed in so much as he has used the word of God as the place of authority to convince and to persuade you of the truth that is there. You only obey Him insofar as He demonstrates it to be true from the Word of God. You don't blindly obey. And isn't this a blessed thing? Why? Well, it ought to prevent the church from following men headlong into error. The very moment that I'm standing up here and I'm convincing you like... Uh, <laughs> I lose track of these guys sometimes and I don't follow it all that close. Um, Jim Baker, right? Jim Baker, for you young ones, that name probably doesn't mean anything to the hoary heads in here. You remember he was the once infamous TV evangelist. I mean, he was way before Benny Hinn and all those guys and uh, had the most money, you know, flying around on jets and all that stuff. And him and his wife... Tammy Faye, I think her name was, got wrapped up in IRS tax evasion, if I remember correctly. He did some prison time. He gets out. And, you know, he's now out somewhere, uh, don't quote me on this, Utah, Arizona, out in the desert plains area somewhere. And he still has a multi-million dollar industry. And he's playing on fear tactics of people, you know, to, to, give, to be preppers, to do He's just manipulating them. And the way, the way he's doing it, the way he's getting away with it and people are obeying him is because they themselves are not being the Berean that God calls them to be as the church. That's the obedience that's being commanded here. When a man of God faithfully represents the word of God to you and you're persuaded and convinced from your conscience that he's not tricking you, he's faithfully explaining it, proving it, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. It's not his own lofty interpretation. You are commanded to obey because you're not obeying a man at that point. Who are you obeying? You're obeying Christ, the master of the house who has sent his messenger to be a steward to present his will and his revelation. And you're simply saying, yes, Christ, yes, Lord, I hear it in your word, and I will obey. Retired pastor Albert N. Martin similarly observed, quote, It is the kind of obedience that is rendered intelligently and volitionally. Volitionally means you're convinced and your will is changed. I once thought this about that, but now that I've been taught and instructed, and yes, it's faithful, I've changed my mind, right? So he says it's, a, it's an obedience that is rendered intelligently and volitionally under the conviction that which is required or being presented as required by the elder is right according to a consistent and correct interpretation of God's word. That's the first command. That's the first command. The application we can make on that is we ought not to be surprised. No elder ought not to be surprised. Where there is a church member who is not reading their Bible, studying their Bible, doesn't have a proper place of the authority of God's word in their own life, they ought not to be surprised if that's the person who seems to be the one that is the, the most likely not to obey. Why? Because the word of God just doesn't have a very hard place in their, in, their, in their life as a Christian. Now, does that mean the elder just chalks them off? Absolutely not. That's one of Christ's sheep. But he has to be patient. He has to teach. He has to explain 105 times, 106 times, right? But ultimately, that's the basis by which they're to obey, is the truth of God's word. But we see a second command here. Obey them which have the rule over you and submit. So we know obeying is this intellectual, volitional decision that I have in order to be convinced from God's word that what the man of God says is true and right and it is required not only of himself as he places himself under the authority of God's word, but it's required of me. But secondly, 
We see here the text speaks of a responsibility of a church member that has to submit to elders or leaders. Now, the, the, the Greek word here uh, pronounced hupaiko is translated in this phrase, submit yourselves. What's interesting is, is this is the only place in all the New Testament it's used. You won't find it anywhere else. And it means simply to yield oneself. Now, what scholars do when they, when they have a phrase like this that carries with it some important practical application, and indeed this does, right? This is the responsibility in the context of making it under the end, not drifting away from the church, of how church members are to submit to church leaders. We want to know what this word means. We want to know what this phrase means, this hupaiko. What's it mean? Well, they go to extra Greek, extra biblical Greek literature, poets, philosophers, things of that nature. And when they go there, they find hupaiko describes at times armies that are retreating or withdrawing from their once held fortified positions. We see it at times in extra biblical Greek uh, literature where armies entirely surrender and give over. They concede, they yield over to the other side. And so it's safe to say that in general, right understanding of this hupaiko in ancient Greek language means very simply to concede unto. To, and it's a good translation in English, to submit oneself, to yield oneself. Now in the immediate and the present context of verse 17, the addition of the submitting ourselves to the obeying that we just learned it takes us one further step in understanding Christ's expectations of His sons and daughters, His disciples in the church to their pastor or His appointed servant. The idea, the meaning behind this submit ourselves, you see, it is quite different from the Paito, from the obeying, this intellect. The first one is, hey, a convincing from God's word, etc., 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 and you volitionally decide, yes, I'm going to obey, I agree, I need to follow, I need to uh, do what is required, what's being presented to me in the word of God. But here, there is, as if it were, a sense of submitting oneself in times when you don't necessarily agree with things that can't be demonstrated from the word of God. Not only is the text saying that church members are to obey when persuaded that their idea or that their elder is implementing clear biblical directives, but it's also encouraging church members to yield in ecclesiastical matters. When those ecclesiastical matters, what we mean by that, young ones, ecclesiastical matters, we mean the life of the church. When those issues of the life of the church cannot be clearly demonstrated from the Word of God that the elder's judgment is an error from Scripture, then the church member is commanded by Christ here to submit oneself, to yield. There is a judgment about what time we meet on the Lord's Day. And the elder or the pastor, if he's wise, he will already have consulted his fellow brethren in the church. Uh, but he's not required to. I mean, you, you, there's not like, you know, the thing where he has to get the permission. If he does that, and someone in the church says, I don't think we should meet at 10. I really think we should meet at 9. Or I think we should meet at 8. And da, 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 da. Here's the reason why. Well, I, I just don't think, I don't think, you know, so forth and so on. The text is saying that that individual, as two armies facing one another, is to concede, is to yield on these otherwise secondary matters that cannot be demonstrated from the Word of God to be evidenced as wrong or right. With that said, this passage or this command to obey that we see first of all seems to imply yielding obedience from a position of persuasion of the mind while to submit seems to strongly imply yielding oneself in obedience from a position when it's contrary, when, it has a con when you have a contrary judgment of what's being said. This is the second command that's contained in this text. And of course, it, I think, focuses a little bit more on the issue of one's will than the first one. The first one is a convincing of the mind. The second one is a turning of the will, even when that will is 
positioned in a stance that's not in agreement. And the true acid test of a submitted will to Christ's will, to, in this case, members to an elder, is when there's disagreement on secondary issues. That's the acid test. There has been more churches ruined because church members will not yield to the discernment, the wisdom, the whatever, the Word of God, to the elder. They buckle down, they bear down because they are not going to submit or surrender their side when their judgment differs from that of the church leadership. That's what the word means, beloved. I'm just the messenger. Study it out. That's, that's, you were, that is what it is saying that the church is to give unto the officers. Now, I think it's helpful to look at some perspectives that may flush this out. Like in a practical way, how does this look? Coming back to Brown, uh, the commentator that I really was leaning on a lot here as he was leaning on Owen and others, um, he says this, Regarding the obedience to pastors and elders as the primary God-ordained teacher of the local assembly, he states, this, you could say, fulfilling the exhortation, this fulfilling the command to obey in a persuasion of God's word, he says it necessarily includes, we're trying to figure out how does this look, it necessarily includes attentive attendance. The fact, he says, it's so fundamental to fulfilling this biblical man to obey and be persuaded by the instruction from the administration of God's word in the pulpit, it's almost embarrassing to have to say it. If you're not present, you're not going to be obeying. You're not getting instructed. You're not, getting, you're not even giving uh, Christ's servant the opportunity to persuade from the text, you see. Coming back to my notes here, I wrote down, if you're not present when the Word of God is being expounded, when a servant is seeking to convince you from biblical truth, when it's taking place, then you not only cannot fully profit from the exposition, you do, remember the context of who he's writing to, You run the risk, the serious risk, of not submitting your mind and your will to the duties and the doctrines when you're confronted with them. I would add that the I would add that the 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 application of obeying here, the pastor or teacher, needs to be described as not perfect attendance, but consistent attendance. Brothers and sisters, I'm conscious, very well aware, very conscious that there's providential hindrances that may prevent us from sitting under the persuasive instruction of the Word of God, fulfilling the exhortation we have here to one another, right? I have an obligation. Every pastor, teacher, when they take that call and have the obligation to be there, ready, and every church member has that obligation to obey, and there are providential hindrances that may prevent us from sitting under the persuasive instruction. But admitting this, it also goes without saying, believe me, brothers, I'm there with you. There's times where we are tempted to allow a whole host of other things to keep us from this instruction of God's word. I'm just feeling wore down this week. I'm feeling so tired. I just need to, to take a day of rest and sleep in. My favorite sporting team's playing today. They're, it's the matchup of the year. I don't think one Sunday will hurt. Hobbies can keep us from this instruction of God's Word. Yard maintenance. I've been guilty of this one in my life. Oh, the whole week's been crummy, but Sunday, it's full sun, 70 degrees, perfect opportunity to clean up the yard. Home projects, the list can go on and on. Brothers and sisters, for those who allow such things to keep them from doing what they know is the will of God for them, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit has already told you. It is sin. It's disobedience, plain and simple. 
Therefore, beware of such temptations. And if there's things preventing anything less than a consistent, not perfect, but consistent attendance, repent we ought to. And ask God to simply give us the grace to change. Regarding submission, elders and pastors are primarily responsible for maintaining order and for protecting the flock from danger and for promoting the well-being of the church. And so there's other ways in which submission looks in a practical sense. Every church is different. There could be a whole host of varying situations, especially when the church and the numbers get multiplied. But here's just a few that are pretty consistent across the board in Christian churches. Consider the admission of new members. Ultimately, the elder and pastor, while they are not infallible, and this is why in the admission of new members, pastors and, and, and elders ought to say, uh, the one of those scriptures, brothers and sisters, you vet, you talk to, you listen to the testimony of new members. You have that responsibility. The pastor is not an infallible man. He can look and he can examine the person. He can read their testimony. He can listen to them. And he can acquiesce from getting to know them whether or not he feels on a biblical standard they ought to be admitted. And when and if he gives a green light and there's a couple people in the church who say, and again, these are just common ones that come up. If a couple people in the church say, I just don't got a good feeling about the person. Well, okay. You know, the rest of the church, and I as the pastor elder, who ultimately bear the ultimate responsibility for this, we feel okay with it. You know, what is your reason? And if there cannot be any biblically sound reason, you're to submit, that person is to submit their will to the elder or the pastor of the church and the church, the majority of the church. That's just a common one. Now that gets sticky when the person seeking membership happens to be a friend. Or that gets sticky and icky when the person happens to be one of your children or a loved one or a relative, right? Well, I can't believe, and you know, and I don't think anyone in this church would have this attitude, but again, go back to King David. I don't think King David thought he was susceptible to you know, right? sinning. Uh, you know, God forbid anyone would have the attitude of, of thinking, well, I, I can't believe they just don't see or he just doesn't see what I see about my family member, my child or what have you, you know? No, the text is commanding here in that situation where there's no clear directive that the church member would submit, concede, and trust in Christ as he's appointed a servant and other brothers and sisters in that matter. What about um, excluding members? That's another sticky situation. Ultimately, the responsibility we see in the New Testament bears upon the elder for the, the, the church community who are members of a church, who are not exercising all of their duties in the church, to, if need be, if the person doesn't want to reform, the person doesn't want to resign their membership, it's the elder's responsibility to ultimately serve church discipline and bring that person before the church and remind the church of their responsibility to the one another's in Scripture and to this individual and say, we have to deal with this. We just can't turn a blind eye. And again, just like with new members coming into a church, there could be a friend or a family member or that dear brother or sister who's just loved by everyone in the church. And the elder has to be the bad guy after much patience, after much diligence, after much efforts to reconcile, after much long-suffering, eventually has to be the person that says, that individual church we have to deal with this matter we have to clean up things here right and if there's people in the church that don't agree with that if they cannot provide a clear biblical reason of why that shouldn't be done this text calls them to submit submit their indifference over to the trust of the majority of the church and the discernment of the elder Another practical one that happens oftentimes that I've experienced in, in churches. I don't know if this is unique to Reformed churches. I don't know. Um, I don't think it is. But it's the evaluation of gifts and graces of those who desire to serve in office in the church. And I've said elders and pastors are not perfect in their judgment. I want to reiterate that clearly. Um, being the ones... However, we see in the text that are, are held to a greater degree than other church members before Christ, ones who have to give an account. 
elders and teachers are uniquely entrusted and called to exercise the greatest discernment and caution in discipling and recognizing quote-unquote gifted brethren from the body to serve in church offices. You guys remember when AJ was reading in 1 Timothy? We remember that Paul exhorted Timothy to perform this ministerial pastoral duty. He said, Timothy lay hands suddenly on no man. Timothy ultimately bore the unique responsibility of making sure that the characteristics of the man's life and also the knowledge, the working knowledge of the gospel and scripture were in place before he was to lay hands or present him before the church for appointment. And just like the other previous cases I've mentioned, whenever an inspiring man is not chosen or a candidate is ultimately not finally appointed, they or any group who wanted the decision to go otherwise should remain submitted and at peace, not cause division, not cause derision in the church and problems, even when it's connected to family members or close friends. Before I move on to the motivation of these commands. Let me just say this. Elders and church members need to always understand that wherever divinely delegated authority is found in the Scriptures, it is to be exercised within the limits of Scripture. That's true for husbands and the authority that's given to them by God in their families. You are to exercise that authority not uncontrollably within the confines of Scripture. I don't know if you ever have to do this, men, but when you abuse your authority, you're the first who ought to raise your hand and say, I'm sorry. I don't want to be like that. I sinned. Please forgive me. I misused my authority. That's true of the authority given to parents and a family. Parents, our authority is regulated by God's Word. It's not up for our own invention, our own creation. God tells us how to use that authority. Same thing with employers. Same thing with the civil magistrates. They like to think they're not under authority, but they are under authority. And they're to use that authority how God has given them to exercise it. And none of those spheres that I just talked about is authority required with blind obedience. Especially when the behavior or the belief, especially in the context we're talking about today, pastors and teachers, when the practice or the belief is contrary to the Word of God. God has delegated authority in different spheres and institutions in life. It's to be used within the confounds of the Word of God. Those under that authority do not have to give blind obedience to that authority in practice and belief if it's contrary to the Scriptures. That simple truth would keep a lot of people on the straight and narrow path and not getting wrapped up in a lot of confusion and mistakes. However, when and where elders are faithful to God's Word and they call the church to follow their example and their lead, there is a duty. In fact, we see here a command to obey. And the basic principle is this. He who will not obey the master of the house in his word is definitely not going to obey his steward. And isn't it interesting that he's talking about this in the context of a church that is prone to drift into apostasy? Well, is there any motivations? There's great motivations. We see it here in our passage. He says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they which watch over your souls as they that must give an account that they do it with joy and not with grief for that is very profitable for them. No. The motivation here is that to make their job grievous, it's not unprofitable for them but for the church at large. So the motivation of our performing this duty of obeying in its right understanding, of submitting in those areas where really we need to just submit to the local church elders and pastors is found here in the text as they who must give an account, they do it with joy, not with grief, that it would be unprofitable for you. Notice with me, 
that a pastor's rule, in so much as he's doing it as he's, and it's qualified by God's word, right? We've already established that. Notice with him that a pastor's rule, qualified by God's word, is established by Christ, not for the benefit of the pastor. It is for the benefit of Christ's church. That's why he has verse 17 here. It's for the benefit of his sheep. The elder is to be limited in his authority and guarded by the word of God. And, and, and the master of the house is saying, you make sure you understand your place. And then likewise, he's telling the sheep, understand and recognize the delegated authority in so much as this person's faithfully doing that. Here's what I want for you. And it's for your profit. I'm going to read the selection here from Brown on this because he says that I can't say it any better way. Regarding the effect of the church's submission, or he says here, quote, non-submission, is likely to have on the discharge of the minister's work is innumerable. If you do not submit yourselves in the, thing, in the way we just looked at, they will perform their work with much grief. There are few bitter sorrow, sorrows than that of a faithful man laboring among a people who counteract his attempts to promote their spiritual improvement. And we hear stories of this uh, I tell you, when I come across studies like this, I love you guys. <laughs> I, I like give thanks to God for this little flock. Um, uh, we here at the RBFI, you know, there's a lot of men there. And by the way, this is a ministry of our church. There's uh, elders and pastors there who are wanting to rightly and faithfully interpret the Word of God. And they come and, you know, they're, they're put in positions of a reforming work. It's not a church plant, right? And, 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 and it's just met with resistance and stubbornness and penitence. I mean, there's just, you know, they don't even want to sit down and open up the Word of God and, and seek to be convinced, seek to be persuaded from a consistent application of faithful hermeneutics that have been tried, tested, and true. You know? Um, and so this is what he's talking about here. There is fewer bitter sorrows than when a man's faithfully trying to do that. It's met with resistance from the church. And I think you're probably thinking the word church is in brackets there. We don't know. You know, it may be as we try to encourage those brothers, hey, it may be tough plowing for a couple months, but there comes a time we're after a season of seeking to convince, to instruct and persuade that if that group of people who call themselves Christians do not want to hear to be taught from the Word of God, shown from the Word of God, and you're hearing things, well, this is just how we've always been, or this is what my grandfather believed, this is what my aunt said. If you're hearing that, you can... Listen, I don't say this apologetically. You can take the word church off of the sign. Why? Because they are demonstrating. They are not under the authority of Christ who has given them this word. Now, there can be legitimate disagreements and interpretations. But let it least be said that there was a setting down of the Bereans, right? A setting down and the opening of the minds to what are you trying to say from Scripture? If that if you can't even get to first base there, uh, we we taught this before in the gospel where Jesus says, uh, "Shake the dust off your feet." You have no more obligation to them. We tell these pastors, we tell these men, these reformers, brother, you do your work. But if they will not submit to the Word of God, don't feel like you failed. Your witness, your time there, the energy you dispensed, God will use it. God will use it. Well, it's a bitter road to travel. And, and Christ is purposefully here warning His church, don't you do that to my servants that I'm sending you. Brown goes on here, he says, even Moses, 
one of the, quote, elders who by faith received a good report, end quote, when the Israelitish people were disobedient and rebellious. You remember this? He was tempted to wish that God would kill him out of hand rather than continue the cause, rather to continue him to cause to see the wretchedness. Slothful, selfish, cold-hearted, cavailing, conceited, contentious congregations have broken the spirit of many a faithful minister of Christ and made him go mourning down to the grave. Uh, we have a, a brother here in this church who, if I understand his history and testimony correct, kind of was in a situation like this, was seeking to uh, bring the Word of God to a church that was steeped in tradition and show them from the Word of God. And they basically told him, we do not want to hear what you have to say from the Word of God. There's the exit door. Get out. I'm sure that brother will tell you, I felt like Moses. Just like, Lord, you know, I, I thought that your people would want to hear your voice. If you do submit yourself, on the other hand, that minister will perform his work with great joy. They will have a holy satisfaction in it. Their work will be their reward. Their hearts will be lifted up in ways of the Lord. The joy of the Lord will be their strength. And like all good Christian elders, they can say with John, quote, we have no greater joy than to see that the children of God walk in truth. And that's not, again, to be taken like, oh, well, this is, this is all about the benefit and the ease of the elder, the, 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 the pastor. He's, he's not to have any grief. No, not at all. It's for the profit of the people. Because when he is coming to really want to do the homework and study and make sure he's rightly handling it and to present it, guess what? You receive that. You're greatly profited by that. Instead of a high view, glossy, just kind of, you know, going over real light. Well, yeah, you're getting the, 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 the crumbs, but you want the real loaf. You want the real meat. You want to know that, hey, yeah, that word obey? Pfft, never thought of it that way. But he's right. Go fact check me. I always say that all the time. You're the Berean. You're supposed to be Bereans. Go fact check that Greek. Go fact check the, the, the example I used in Luke and the, ex, the other scripture I pulled alongside it in Romans 8. Is that what that word means? It does mean that, beloved. And you see, now you're profited thereby. Maybe it could be that many elders and pastors and teachers don't want to unpack it to that degree because it puts a greater onus on them, doesn't it? I think in this message I put more onus on the responsibility and the work and, and the duties of the elder, right? That he's to be doing his homework in order that the yielding, the obeying, and the submitting on the part of the church is a lot easier. And isn't this true of other fa uh, familiar relationships we're in? Marital relationships? You know, husbands, do, do we make it hard for our wives to yield to our authority? No, we're, when we do it the right way, Usually there's not a big fight. I, I'm surprised sometimes of the things I hear that go on in some churches between the men and the women. And the, and the first symptom a lot of times is, is that the men aren't exercising their authority in their marriages the right way. And so this is why you got a big problem of the sexes in the church. But if that was taken care of, you really wouldn't hear a whole lot. Not to say that it wouldn't happen, right? But when we, and, and same thing in the business world. If, I, if I'm coming in, you guys know, I work as an owner and a manager. If I'm coming in and I'm just condescending, throwing my weight around, insulting everybody, well, how do you think that's going to go? It's not going to go very good, is it? No, I earn the respect of the guys in the field because I put my boots on with them. They, I, I'm not going to ask them to do anything that I myself haven't done or am not willing as far as my physical ability still will allow me to do. You see, I'm showing them as well as teaching them. And I think that goes true too in the church. When the elder's doing what he's doing and using his authority the way he's given it to do, the church will easily yield it. You have problems where there's a misunderstanding by the ruler in the church of his authority and how he's supposed to use it. And then you're going to have problems because usually the true sheep of Christ, they weren't born yesterday. <laughs> and they'll say, uh-uh, that's not right. Amen. And, I, and we have an example. There's, there's some of you in this church that are like that. You, you try to sit down. And you try to reason from the Word of God. And you were met 
not with a, a humility of a brother to brother. You were met with, you know, domineering, shouting match. And you're kind of like, well, what's this all about? Amen? What's this about? I thought we were supposed to be guided from God's word. I thought you were supposed to be a convincer and a persuader from God's word. So, you know, you can't convince me or persuade me the role of women in the church from God's word. You want to yell at me and insult me because I don't have a degree like you, right? Amen? I'm looking at you, brother, because you had your, had your testimony. And it fits perfectly for the application here. Let it not be said of us, beloved. Let it not be said of us. And it definitely, at this point, praise be to God, Lord, protect us. That's not the case. Amen? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for its clarity. Uh, we thank you for its lofty, divine, Lord, instruction. We thank you for its practicability, uh, Lord, especially for what we've considered today with the working relationship and the institution that you have left upon this earth until you return. Lord, we pray that you would grant to us at this church, beginning with me, Lord, um, great humility to always be students, to always be subjective to your word. Uh, Father, crush pride, uh, crush, dear Lord, any of that where it may be found uh, in our church, in our thinking of ourselves. Uh, Lord, crush anything, Lord, that would hinder the working out of verse 17 in the life of this church. But we don't just pray for our church, Father. Uh, we pray for the church at large. We ask, O oh God, that you would bring in our day and age a reassessment. Uh, if we've understood these things correctly of what obeying means and what it includes with the responsibility of an elder or teacher faithfully preaching God's word, we pray, God, that you would help men in pulpits see that. Uh, Lord, that they, that they would humble themselves and that they would see themselves not as sovereigns, but as we said earlier, as servants. And that they would faithfully plow and unpack the word and, and hold it up, Lord, not only before themselves as an examination instrument, but also before the people of God. And Lord, we pray that you would use this to grow us, to mature us, and to help us to be strong in the times of trial and, 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 and afflictions, Lord, that will definitely come. Lord, we pray ultimately that you would preserve us. Keep us, Lord, in the design that you have established. Oh, the divinely instituted design that you've established in your local church. And may we be about the business of your church in the age in which you've placed us. We thank you, we glorify you, and we worship you. In Jesus' holy name, we pray these things. Amen.